welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness and well-being and I'm delighted that you're here. Morning everyone, hope you're having a fabulous week. It is Wednesday already, if you're catching this on the Wednesday. And of course, daylight savings for us here in New Zealand, which even though we only like skip an hour, always feels like about three hours, that kind of jet lag feeling. But anyway, today on the show, I'm so excited to bring to you my conversation that I have with one of my besties, Dr. Karen Fasandia, all about stress, chronic stress, languishing, and the endurance phase of stress. Now, Karen is a clinical psychologist. She is based down in Wellington, and she's an integrative mental health practitioner. And she is actually the founder of the practice, The Integrative Practice, which is a holistic psychology service in Wellington, New Zealand. Karen and I spend our time talking about the negative impact of chronic stress, this whole concept of sort of languishing, and how she helps people cope in times of stress. And it's using obviously techniques that she's learned through her practice as a doctor of clinical psychology but also because Karen is holistic she takes a much broader view of health and puts into place a lot of the things that we talk about in Wikipedia with other guests related to lifestyle, diet, exercise and a whole host of things. Karen's innovative approach integrates those psychological aspects, nutritional and lifestyle strategies into a practical recovery framework for adults experiencing mental health concerns resulting from chronic stress, anxiety and overwhelm. And we talk about them in today's show. Now, Karen has also released an upcoming online course called Project Revive, which offers an integrative journey for a calm, energized and connected life. So this is a six week program and it provides a step-by-step supported approach to help arm you with an abundance of practical tools and techniques to promote long-term psychological well-being. And a lot of what Karen and I talk about today is based in that space. And you can find out more about Project Revive because it is now live on her website at theintegrativepractice.com where you can also find more information about Karen and her background. And just a little bit more information on Karen, She has completed postgraduate modules with the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine and is currently furthering her study in clinical nutrition. And she's got a wealth of information on her blog as well. So this is such a great resource, people. So if you've got any interest, queries or concerns in and around this area, I highly recommend that you check out theintegrativepractice.com and without further delay please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Karen Fasandia. Dr. Karen Fasandia, did I say that right? You nailed it. Fantastic, I've never said your your last (laughs) name out loud, I think that's what it is. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Yes, I'm here in Wellington and it's windy. <laughs> that almost, like, people, when you see people post about Wellington on a good day, you just know it's a little bit like a hashtag done stunner, you know, like things like that seem not to happen that often. So when they do, we want to shout about it. Absolutely, in Wellington you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, how is life in Level 2? Um, Life is feeling different again. All the levels seem to feel like they've got their sort of their thing, don't they? Like level four just feels very restrictive. Level three feels like just a little bit more freedom, like psychologically. Mm. And then level two is sort of, for me, it's almost like the least preferred um, of the levels because it's not normal, but you're kind of going about your business a bit more, but there's just so many things you've got to think about the whole time. Mm. Yeah, what about you? you? You're still level four. 
still level four and I'm gunning for a change to level three on Tuesday. So fingers crossed that that happens. Uh, Mm But feeling super interesting to note how I feel this time around compared to all the other times, you know, like it's, it's, I actually, I came across a word yesterday called languishing and it was a, a New York Times article written by Adam Grant. And he used that term to refer to that sort of underlying, uh, all not depressed, not anxious, just not excited feeling that we've all sort of got in and around how life is going to be moving forward. And this article, I think, might have been written in November 2020, and it was referring to how we're all going to feel about 2021. And I'm reading this article and it, I'm thinking that's so pinpoints exactly how I'm sort of feeling right now basically just a little bit below my usual level if you like like it's fine and actually we are so much luckier than so many other people and I'm 100% know that but Mm, yeah yeah I call that a bit (laughs) meh yeah Yeah. that would that would be the other apt description (laughs) of it right yeah Yeah. but there's been so many um changes right you know it's all the little things that add up to to be everything yeah yeah completely and as you say there's a there's you know as you move through the levels I agree with you level two is my least preferred level uh for the fact that it's almost like you are pretending to do what you normally do but it's in such abnormal kind of conditions and restrictions Mm. and that it's not a um there's nothing like going out for example is actually not that fun because you are so social distance so you're in this environment where you would normally socially interact with a whole bunch of people and then suddenly you have to all be um sitting apart you've got masks um mm. you can't go up to the bar to get your drink they have to come to you like like just almost every part of that process is yet another reminder that life isn't normal and yeah. you're just not sure when it'll be normal if you like mm. Yep, and, you know, being wired for connection, that just takes a big toll, right, like all day long for people, having those type of social exchanges where, you know, people, you can't even see their mouths to see if they're smiling at you properly. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Karen, what has been your experience with, um, I guess, not just your clients, but people around you with, with how they've coped with, lockdown with the last 18 months and I obviously I'm aware that Wellington is different from Auckland it's been less sort of prone to just having these snap lockdowns but you guys have had it as well what is your sort of professional sort of um opinion on how how people have been coping yeah I mean I I kind of agree with what you were saying about the second time round. it's probably third time for you I think you had sort of another one in, in between up in Auckland but um the first one had novelty, mm. um, you know, so it was all new, even though it was also uncertain and anxiety-provoking for many and, and put a lot of stress on people. Um, there was also the novelty factor of sort of like, what is this? And, you know, lots of people on the one hand reported a really positive experience of um, stopping, slowing down, um, cooking at home, uh, spending time with people, you know, but it depended so much on your home situation you know, other factors, what your relationships were like, what your financial situation was like, um, other stresses, um, family further afield that you could no longer see or overseas. Um, this time around, that kind of that novelty factor hasn't been there, I think, for people. So, I mean, my personal experience for the first probably two or three days was kind of like, oh, yeah, like we, I'm having a, I'm stopping again and, you know, mm. I don't do anything right now apart from, of course, all the things that you do have to do when you run a business and, and get, keep things going. But um, then it quite quickly wore off and mm. I think it's for me it was it was like, oh, you know, um, the novelty factor wasn't there and not knowing. We didn't sort of know this time that there was a clear time frame mm. um, because of the way it had to be done this time, sort of in a piecemeal kind of like, right, the next three days are like this. We're going to review it in three days. Okay, right, we're doing this for another three days. It, mm. it sort of wasn't, um, you know, sort of like we're doing this for two weeks and you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you didn't really know kind of what you were responding to. 
um, this time. I think the Delta strains put a lot more fear out there for people, mm. um, a lot more worry about the level of, you know, possible contagion and um, and things. Um, so for some people, I think there's a bit more worry just with the the name that's, and the fear that's kind of come with that particular name. Yeah. And mm. so I want to ask you from your, uh, with your professional sort of hat on, what's your opinion on how, uh, actually, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but <laughs> I'm really interested to know, like, what's your opinion on how we as a population are being sort of told the information? So obviously the Herald, for example, you know, they'll, they'll always have the breaking news and they'll have the, the live sort of updates at one o'clock and they have the vaccine rollout across going across the sort of the top of the screen. But I guess from a, uh, like the signs in and around Delta, the, the jingle that we hear um, every time they talk about COVID and, and that woman's voice is now just kind of almost <laughs> burnt into my brain, you know, what she's saying. Like, do, do you have any opinions on, like professional opinions on the tactics that are used to sort of uh, relay information to us? Mm. Yeah, well, if, like I think I could answer that by kind of zooming out and looking at, you know, news and information that we receive more broadly. Um, I definitely don't want to bag the media because I think they've got a really tough job these days to mm. get you know their information out and it has changed over time um massively but if you zoom out you know we've never we weren't designed for the sort of 24 7 updated you know latest risk and threat kind of information constantly being bombarded at us um mm. and you know because we now have you know i guess it's it's on our phone you know it's on our computer it's on our tvs it, it's hard to get away from um, particularly when you're under stress and that kind of tendency to get control and seek information and, and um, check, you know, those sort of checking behaviours are happening, which just perpetuates a stress response, you know, each new piece of news, which yes, I um, know what you mean about that sort of more sensationalist kind of headline, um, you know, trying to grab, you know, kind of attention, but it's kind of like each time, you know, your body is still responding exactly the same way as if a, a tiger just walked in the room. Mm. You know, it's kind of like our brains don't really differentiate kind of like a, a threat from something we're reading, you know, or that might happen one day or that could happen or that might have happened to somebody else, you know. Um, we, so we just got that information overload um, and not enough offsetting of that with kind of more positive stuff um, mm. necessarily. Mm. Yeah. So I don't know. What do you think? I am 100% with you on that. And I agree, you're, you're right, like the media and the way the government has to relay information, like I'm, mm. I'm certainly not saying it's, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not against it, but I'm just mm. observing how I feel when I hear the little delta ring, the little jingle that goes with it. I immediately sort of, I, I almost feel like it, I get this adrenaline response, you know, yes. like yeah. what new information are they going to tell me? Um, yeah. Yes. Can, and then when it's nothing, I sort of go, oh, and I almost, I, it almost feels like these little spikes across the course of a day, even though I know mm. for the most part, there's not going to be any new um, information. I still get that. Yes. I feel, and it feels like it's wearing me down, actually. That's so hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you literally are producing adrenaline. You know, each time you do hear that noise, you know, mm. you've got that conditioned response now and your hypothalamus literally will re be releasing yeah. Karen, can you talk to us, talk us through the stress response and what is a normal stress response, but then also what situations like this, what impact that it might have been having on our stress response? So can you sort of talk us through that? Because not everyone will be familiar with yeah. that. Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, we, we do have humans have a stress response. So it's part of our nervous system. Um, and the part specifically involved is, is a, an arm of the nervous system called the autonomic nervous system. Mm. So it's that sort of more automatic um, part, which branches out into two arms. So one side of that is the stress response. So um, as I said, you know, if a tiger walked into the room or when you hear, you know, that news alert, um, your body gears up um, to anticipate kind of that threat and mm. to respond and to survive. Mm. So, you know, the stress system is there, it's adaptive, it's to help us cope and survive and respond to things in our life. And it's always been designed to be relatively short-lived, like sort of short and sharp, um, to get the job done, to help us to either 
put up a fight if we can or to flight um, to get away. Mm. And if neither of those options are there for us, then other things can happen. Um, but we won't go so much into that. That's more kind of to do with, like, you know, imminent trauma, like assault and, and things like that. But in these sorts of situations, you know, it's that more acute stress. Um, and so if something happens and we have a stress response to it and it's not able to resolve, then we go into a kind of lo- longer-lasting stage. Mm. And so the, the body is responding using um, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, so the HPA axis. Um, which is where, you know, we've got sort of the adrenaline um, being kicked off. Uh, that goes to the pituitary gland. Um, then we also next, uh, if, if this threat isn't resolving along this way, then we will start to make cortisol with the, in the adrenal glands. Mm. Um, and so if you're having multiple ongoing stresses or there's that feeling of ongoing stress that can't resolve, um, your body's basically kind of going into that like low-grade stress or fight and flight um, response and the thing that's wrong with that although that's also adaptive you know we can do that for periods of time to kind of get through you know so if, like in the past you know from an ancestral perspective like if there was like say a famine or there was like kind, kind of hardship going on um, people would be able to kind of use up their reserves you know kind of um, keep going get through and then have a rest and recovery stage at some point mm. it's not ideal but you know we can do that so you know in modern society that might be kind of you know I guess right now like in a pandemic we're kind of under an endurance stage where we're rising to the challenge and having to kind of keep responding to like ongoing um, changes and threats in our environment that we can't control necessarily um, but you know in, in modern life it could also be like working on a work deadline um, getting through prolonged study, caring for a loved one who's sick um, for a long period of time, um, or more often what I see in my practice is sort of a combination of lots of those things kind of mm. all being juggled at the same time as not enough um, going into the opposite arm of the of the autonomic nervous system, which is the rest and digest side mm. um, or the parasympathetic um, nervous system. Um, and that's where kind of our gut works well, our immune system, you know, is kind of supported. Our hormone system's all kind of working optimally and our body can really heal from whatever stresses that we've been contending with um, and, yeah, digest our food and absorb our nutrients optimally um, and, yeah, recover and rebalance. Um, so when that can't happen enough of the time, we tend to go into um, something called uh, an allostatic load, mm. um, which is the wear and tear and the damage that can be happening both psychologically um, as well as physically to our health, you know, when we're under this sort of endurance type of stress. Mm. Karen, are there people who are more predisposed to getting into that endurance phase and not uh not having that adequate um sort of rest and recovery and parasympathetic nervous system response or is everyone sort of at the same risk of of the detrimental effects of that yeah that's a really um interesting question because you know we do all have the same physiology so no one's immune from this Kind of, we all have a, a sympathetic nervous system that's going to respond and, and react um, when we when we feel under threat or mm. in danger. Um, but there are differences, and some of them will be, you know, I guess sort of genetic differences to do with, um, you know, how we metabolize and kind of cope when, when we're under stress with like some of those stress hormones and and things like that. Um, and then you've got your sort of early life experiences that can provide a set point for the nervous system. So mm. generally, you know, what we sort of know from psychology and things like the adverse childhood experiences studies, uh, studies um, would be that, you know, if you've had really difficult early life relationships where you've had your nervous system has sort of become wired more towards threat or expecting threat um, or not feeling supported, you know, enough. Um, that you know that becomes a bit of a set point for um, you, you know your later years as well. Mm. Um, and if you've been through kind of adverse childhood experiences, which can be different traumas, which could be you know abuse, neglect, you know those sorts of experiences that we think of, um, but it can also be things like you know moving cities or um, you know someone in the family was sick, um, mm. you know, so those those really adverse sort of things that take a toll, again, on that sort of nervous system and allostatic load. Um, 
So, you know, if you had a relatively kind of robust childhood with not too much kind of stress happening um, or trauma happening and really good kind of family support and all of that, that sets you up really, really well to, I guess, have resilience and to have a nervous system that kind of thinks I can cope. Mm. And, you know, when things happen, people are going to be there for me. Mm. Um, That, of course, is all challenged for all of us under these conditions where, you know, those usual lines of resources and support might not be accessible for the first time in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting what you're saying about that adverse, the adverse child studies. And this is, you know, I know for me, like I, you know, there are just a couple of instances that I could um, immediately relay that I think set up sort of how I felt about myself and situations, which were almost comments that the, the the adult making them would have just not even thought twice about, but had a real impact on me moving forward. You know, and this wasn't my parents, mm. these were just other adults in my life. And then, sure. and I can see how, you know, that childhood experience sort of sets you up. What about the epigenetic environment? So we know in nutrition, for example, that a lot of sort of health health um, outcomes, or maybe not a lot, maybe that's overstating it. We're understanding the impact of what our mothers did and what their mothers did on our um, on our own health outcomes. Mm. Now, is the same yes. sort of seen in that stress literature? Oh, definitely. So there's this really fascinating research. Um, there's a book called, I think it's, I didn't, it didn't start with you. Mm. Um, I think the author is Mark Wooligon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's his name. Anyhow, yeah. this book, It Didn't Start With You, is all about um, inherited sort of uh, epigenetic family um, trauma mm. um, and how that impacts. But he talks about some um, mouse studies, actually, in, in this book. Um, where what they did was they they got the a mother um, and they get it's, it sounds awful but they kind of gave her a, a traumatic experience can't remember what it was but you know something that get put her under a, a fight or flight kind of response um, but they paired it with the smell of cherry blossom mm. um, and so or cherries cherry so when she went on to have her pups um, who had never been exposed to that smell. Um, and they did give them a trial of what that was, what that what effect that smell would have on them. They all went into a fight or flight response. Mm. So that happened to her pups. Um, but what they found that that also happened for her, the pups of her pups, so her grand pups. Oh. Um, when they were presented with the smell of cherry, they basically all went into a fight or flight response. Um, and so I think that really highlights that kind of study. Really highlights just how we get can get conditioned. And I I've you know, seeing that in clinical work that I do with adults, you know, this is just anecdotal reports, but like people whose um, families went through, like grandparents went through the Holocaust Mm. and just some of the ways that that has showed up for the person in my room um, where they've never been through some of those experiences, but the impact on their, on their behavior and what's happening for them, you know, around things like maybe food or um, anxiety, certain like phobias that come up for them. Um, so yeah, I definitely think there's something about that sort of imprinting of what we need to be worried about, you know, mm. so preparing our offspring for certain dangers in the environment. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are, are your clients aware of the, the link or is it sort of in your work? Do you, do, do you make it aware or is it just something that you sort of have mm. in your head that, that you're like, okay, so that makes sense to me. Like, how does that sort of work? Yeah. Um, usually bit of both you know mm. so depending on um the personal kind of yeah but um definitely in my head but certainly I like to help people become aware yeah um, and books like that that one I mentioned you know are a great resource for people to kind of go away and, and reflect and learn about that stuff um and draw some of those dots um you know because then it's, it's just sometimes having a, a narrative to make sense of why something's happening yeah for sure and um Mm. we'll pop that um book in the show notes for people if they're interested to to Mm. check out um so when people hear that a lot of how we respond now may well be how we have been wired to respond does that mean that people can't do anything about it so what what sort of tactics can people sort of put into place if they feel like they're in that sort of boat that's the beauty of all of this isn't it is that there's so much we can do 
um, when we are under either an, a sort of chronic stress experience, um, you know, that we can do to offset that and to either prevent or um, cope and get through or recover from, you know, some of the impacts of chronic stress. Um, so, yeah, there's, um, you know, you come at it from sort of psychology tools, you can come at it from nutrition and lifestyle, um, you know, in order to support the nervous system. Um, so, you know, from the sort of more psychology side, um, the main things really are about helping, you know, calm things back down. So what can happen when you get kind of, you know, like when you've got those news stories kind of constantly reminding you that Delta's all around, you know, you get really wired and sort of anticipating um, that next threat. Mm. So helping your body to kind of get safe again and to calm back down basically kind of tones up that nerve, um, the vagus nerve. Um, to um, kind of stop you being so reactive. So you can kind of do things like that. To, if you can't change much in your environment, you can do some, some work around what you can do with your response to the environment um, to, to get, get more resilient. Um, so some of that is, you know, sort of breathing. There's different breathing techniques um, to help switch on parasympathetic mode. So having a longer out breath um, and spending some time each day just kind of resetting that, you know, taking five or ten minutes to just kind of step away from your day, um, use it. I mean, there's so many apps now, like I like the Smiling Mind app, um, there's Calm, um, there's Headspace, you know, there's just so many helpful apps if you need sort of a bit of guidance on how to do a little bit of that sort of mindful breathing to switch off and step away from stress. Mm. I think because there is, you know, you can, one controllable factor is how much we kind of pay attention to um, all of those incoming threats, you know, from devices um, and things. So just allocating maybe some time each day where you will check in consciously with with some news. You know, obviously, I guess we have to stay informed about what's happening with level changes and what we need to be doing. But, you know, how often do we need to realistically do that? Mm. Um, so, you know, you can do some environmental kind of controls around the things you can mm. um, change. Um, Grounding is another really useful kind of safety kind of psychology tool. So just helping come back to the present moment, coming out of strong emotions or threat um, through using your senses. Mm -hmm. um, so a simple exercise is kind of to notice five things. Um, so to just look around the room, stop for a moment, notice and name five things you can see, stop and listen, you know, notice five things you can hear. Um, check in with your feet on the ground mm. you know, notice what they feel like grounded on, on the earth mm -hmm. um, you know even better to get outside do it on the grass get your bare feet get in the ocean you know feel the the sand and the water um, and um, yeah notice other things you might be able to feel like the wind on your skin your, the fabric of your clothing mm. and when you bring on board those senses and you kind of shift your focus away from thoughts and sensations, you know, happening in that stress response, um, it just brings you back to the present moment. It just kind of calms everything back down um, and gives your body a, a sense of being safe and here in this moment. Like right now, I'm okay. Mm -hmm. You know, which um, we, we sometimes have to do over and over when you're going through chronic stresses and the scary stories in our mind about the future and what might be happening mm. you know coming back to right now like are you okay in this moment mm, mm. yeah those are such sort of simple tools and I find it really interesting because when I speak to people uh around food often stress comes up because food can is either you know a distraction or it's you know it stress impacts um how someone eats and, and what they eat and that kind of thing and yeah, I definitely. imagine of course in your role as a psychologist you'll have a lot more buy-in to some of the things that you just talked about which all sound super simple and very sort of um immediate um mm. people I talk to really struggle to buy into this idea that what they can do in that here and now can really change things. Like, do you get that kind of resistance at all? Or is it just because when people talk to me, I'm a nutritionist, so they just want to talk to me <laughs> about food? Yeah, look, um, I think that has its origins in this idea that we don't like to feel discomfort mm. and that our goal is generally to move away from discomfort and to try and feel happy or calm or okay, you know, and that makes sense. Like I understand why we all do that. You know, I'm a human too and those are my preferred experiences as well. However, you know, 
we also feel all of these other feels, you know, like we get anxious, we feel like sad, we feel scared, we feel um, frustrated, um, Mm. shame and guilt, you know, like all of these sorts of feelings come up. And so I think, you know, sometimes it just comes back to that trying to get rid of um, how we feel. And so when people are like, oh, I tried some grounding, it didn't work for me. Mm. It's kind of like, well, you know, what happened? And it might be like, oh, well, I was feeling you know, like um, sad or I was feeling, you know, I just um, was feeling frustrated because I wasn't feeling calm quickly, you know. So yeah. it's that idea of like, well, you know, these things might not necessarily change how you feel. They might not make you feel happy and you might not feel calm immediately. Um, they're still useful and they're going to take you towards a de- direction that matters. And um, to use a term of our friend um, Lara Bryden, you know, you've got to play the long game. Yeah. Um, you know, so sometimes it's not a quick fix. And if you've been under an endurance stage, you know, as we have with, you know, up and down with this pandemic for like months on end, you know, it's not going to take a day of doing a bit of breathing, you know, to kind of reset everything. You know, it's going to take some time to support your stress response to heal and recover, um, you know, and, you know, as you know in your your job, like there's just so much you can do from a nutritional perspective to support this process to make it easier. And that's what I find in my work is that when people, you know, kind of cover some of those bases, make sure that you're looking after, you know, what you're actually putting into your body, making sure that you're kind of getting the protein and healthy fats, particularly at the start of the day, um, making sure you're hydrating throughout the day, filling any gaps that might be there around kind of B vitamins zinc, um, magnesium, you know, a lot of those stress nutrients. Um, Fatty acids are so important to your nervous system, as you know. Mm. Um, Your whole nervous system um, and the myelin sheath is made from fats. Mm. And, you know, like that's what it it is. And they're essential fats. We have to consume those. Um, And so these are things that can help support, you know, provide a foundation, which then all those psychology tools you know, can sometimes um, alongside that work better, you know, because you're kind of doing both sides. You're supporting the gut, you're supporting what's going into the gut, um, you're helping your nervous system make sure that there's no gaps in what it needs, um, which are going to be higher during stress. Mm. Um, as um, you've just, you and I have both just been looking at Julia Rutledge's book, The Better Brain, mm. and she talks about um, a theory that I found really helpful to kind of think about, which was the triage theory yeah. um, of stress and how when you're under an endurance stage, those nutrients are going to be diverted away, you know, to those survival organs and um, muscles, you know, so you might be missing out, you know, your nervous system, your brain might be missing out because there's meant to be the short-term diversion of all those nutrients to help you fight or flight. Um, But when that goes on for months on end, you know, you're going to be depleting and that then perpetuates the whole stress cycle Mm. um, because everything starts to uh, become self-maintaining. You know, the more stressed you are, the harder it is to kind of get out of stress. Mm, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, that's the that's how you and I have you know become good friends and and met because I we met through ancestral health society and how your ancestral sort of interest in in how the brain operates and the use of nutrition and stuff to help support people in their uh, stress response and and in the work that you do. Yet that doesn't seem to me to be a very sort of uh, prevalent message maybe when people think about clinical psychology. Uh, It's not often sort of the first thing that people go, oh, yeah, you really need to think about your food and nutrients. People are more often think, okay, well, what's the medication that I think I'm going to need to take to help sort of support me in the here and now? The quick fix, and I understand that. And it's, you know, if I think about just sort of the standard stuff people would go to when they're stressed, it's things like coffee and uh, alcohol Um, and sugar and, and from a nutrition perspective, all the things which may exacerbate the stress response, (laughs) but that immediate pleasure of having them um, sort of overrides any other thought of what the long-term negative impact could have. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then it just erodes things further right Mm, completely 
Karen, with your work then, so you're obviously very interested in um, people supporting sort of all pathways, like with their diet, as well as the psychological tools that you use. How open are your clients to sort of making dietary change to help support their nervous system? Like, Is that a conversation that they're willing to have? Is that something that you introduce later on down the line? What's that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I've run, so my business is called Integrative Practice and it got set up in 2016, so six years almost on. What I've found is that people increasingly have become interested. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I first started, I was doing, you know, a lot more sort of general psychology. People might not have been that interested. um, And so I was sort of doing lots of a bit of both, whereas now my whole work is just working in this way using both sides. Um, but what I what I trend I've noticed is that people now ask for that. They're looking for that. They're trying to find a service that would provide that. Mm. Um, and so that's really I think that's showing that there is some shift. And I think a lot of the work that has been coming out of you know so um, the University of Canterbury with Julia Rutledge's research is becoming more known. Her book is helping to get word out. Um, Felice Jacker over in um, Deakin University in Melbourne. Um, a lot of her work around the Mediterranean diet for depression and, and doing RCT, you know, outcomes which have been replicated, finding that, you know, it can be used as a standalone treatment and be mm. effective, you know, um, for depression. Um, you know, I think people are becoming more interested and probably the pandemic has made us all a lot more interested in wellness because there's been this concern about health you know like mm. the, the this virus has made everyone aware that they really value health and they're worried about health and they don't want to get sick or die you yeah. know so um maybe that's a silver lining um and all of this I don't know like I guess time will tell if there is a silver lining but um yeah so I definitely find that probably because of the nature of my business people are really open to it mm. um, because probably they're kind of already aligned and and in fact, I look for that when I take on clients, I kind of check that they're going to be a suitable match for the type of approach that I offer, because it's not for everyone. And I think if it's not for you, then that's absolutely fine. If, if a preferred approach is something like um, medication or just pure, purely therapy focused, that's absolutely fine. Like there are lots of services for lots of different people. Mm. Um, this just happens to be the one that I provide. And yeah, I think there's there's definitely a lot of interest. I mean, I've had to close my books you know, a lot of the time just because it's so um, it's, it's so busy. But, you know, most psychologists at the moment, as you know, there's a shortage and the demand for services is really high. Um, and I think that reflects how much this, that sort of heightened stress response and uncertainty has sort of um, made people realise that they need some tools or um, support around that Mm. yeah it's interesting at work you know we talk about um the pandemic and 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 other things that have gone on with 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 work stuff and and it's really easy to normalize what's going on because everyone is in the same situation and you can always think of someone who is in a worse situation than you you know Mm. so I feel like people who are used to coping with a lot of things on their plate sometimes don't give enough headspace or importance to how they're feeling about the pandemic or they almost brush it off that it's not an important thing that they're feeling because there are people so uh, worse off and you almost feel guilty for feeling a bit hard done by or for having these sort of depressive moments and and stuff like that it's so interesting how people respond yeah I I think you know, perhaps, I don't know, but like in New Zealand, I wonder because we've kind of been almost like the golden child of, you know, this pandemic, haven't we? There's, we've yes. been sort of put on a pedestal of, look how New Zealand's doing, you know, and like, it is amazing, you know, like I really took for granted those months in between last lockdown and this lockdown and life is basically normal, you know, whatever normal is now, but still not been able to do lots of things with like visit family overseas, but, you know, just caring about you going about your business um so there's a a thing called survivor's guilt um Mm. out of the trauma literature which is kind of like when other people are worse off or have been through or you know went through an event maybe they died or they got like really badly injured or other things happened and and you survived you know that there's a sort of survivor's guilt of like well you know I don't deserve you know why did that happen to them and why why wasn't it me Mm. or why you know I I can't 
complain about like the impact that this little bit's had on me because it's not as bad Mm. um and so I do wonder if there's some of that Mm. um happening kind of like you know we don't deserve to feel you know and I understand that you know I think yeah I can't imagine what it's like overseas in various countries around the world not just with this but with other things happening like Afghanistan Mm. um I just I can't think about it it's just it's overwhelming so yeah the tactics that you mentioned before about grounding and about being present and using those apps would they be helpful tactics for people who might be experiencing some of what we've just talked about with survivor's guilt to sort of put into place daily to help them sort of cope and understand more how they're feeling or are there other things people can do do you know Mm. well I think you know so our mind is always trying to help us. So, you know, so when it's like there's just thoughts that come through and some of them are useful and some of them aren't. And so it's thinking, like, is it is it helpful to engage with those thoughts? Like, does it, like, what is what can I do with that right now? Mm. You know, and, like, it doesn't mean that, you know, you're a bad person because other people might be in a different boat that might, you know, might be perceived and might realistically be much, tangibly much worse. Mm. Um, it doesn't negate the fact that you feel how you feel you Mm. know feelings are just feelings and if you feel flat low if you're languishing you know like that's makes sense you know um and that's okay even though you know you're comparing against like it's a comparison process and it doesn't change the fact that you feel that way and that these thoughts are there so a little bit of that sort of acceptance you know like being able to kind of make space for that Mm. without judging it like I'm not a bad person just because I feel this way and I shouldn't. Like there's this sort of rules, like I shouldn't feel this way because I don't deserve to or it's not bad enough Mm. or I should be grateful. You know, it's like, should you? Like these are just (laughs) thoughts and feelings. Yeah, yeah. You know, like it's just your body and your brain and your emotional system kind of responding. And actually the more you make space for that and don't struggle against it, the more likely those feelings are just going to pass through. Yeah, nice. Um, and do their job, which is just to tell you that you're feeling, you know, that you're missing stuff yeah. or that you you need to find a new way to seek reward right now, which yeah. doesn't have to be alcohol and sugar. <laughs> it, could be, it could be, you know, like um, reading an amazing book, you know, yeah. or starting a book yeah, or, yeah. you know, all sorts of things. Yeah, you know, no, Going I- for a walk. Yeah, no, I really love that. And it is, it's that validation of feelings, right? It's actually Mm -hmm. these feelings I'm having are valid. It doesn't matter that I've still got my job and that I, you know, have a a home, you know, that I can go to or that I'm stuck in and and all the rest Mm -hmm. of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it it could have the nicest place and it could still feel like a prison, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. um... So, Karen, so... I'll tell you a story. I had a client who I worked with and um, we were just, she had an autoimmune condition and we sort of went through her diet and um, she would be getting regular body work, like massage work, because she was also quite active. And one of the things which I see time and again with people is their completely low protein diet. Like it's when whenever I, it feels like I'm on broken record or gosh, people must be getting sick of me talking about this but it's so prevalent I just you know I I can't help but just continue to remind people and so with her she was following a largely a sort of an unintended vegetarian approach because for whatever reason meat just always feels too hard to cook anyway so I I encouraged her to bump up her protein intake bump up her red meat intake and that was one of the major focus for her sort of in the three weeks before between our appointments we came back on for our follow-up appointment and she said she said two things to me one she was like my massage therapist couldn't believe the change in my tissue with the change in my diet so because obviously with diet whenever you increase something something else usually gives you know and for her it was getting rid of a lot of the processed kind of carbohydrate type foods Um, and she said she said something interesting she said that the massage therapist felt her body was less anxious and she said to me that up until changing her diet she just thought she was an anxious person and she realized actually she wasn't and it was driven by her diet how much of that do you see in your clinic 
Well, I mean, that, that's a great story to highlight, you know, how powerful the role of nutrition and, you know, mental health experiences can be. Um, I've got to agree with you on the protein thing. You know, one of the massive kind of food mistakes that people are accidentally making with, you know, that I pick up on a lot of the time, you know, um, I wouldn't say all the time, but a lot of the time would be insufficient protein, particularly at the top end of the day. Mm. Um, so, um, but yeah, I mean, you think about all the ways in which that dietary intervention would have changed what's happening in her body around stress and anxiety, you know, by stabilizing blood sugar um, throughout the day, her ranges wouldn't have been sort of as chaotic and up and down. Um, providing amino acids to the brain yeah um you know to to support making neurotransmitters that are involved in feeling calm and and happy and and okay Mm. um yeah like so many ways yeah that that would have worked yeah protein is such a good vehicle for those micronutrients as well right iron zinc magnesium the b vitamins that you were talking about and, you know, you and I are both very aligned. And so, of course, we have our bias. You know, we both feel that including animal protein in the diet is optimal for mental health, for physical health. Yet this goes against this plant-based narrative that sort of is coming in from everywhere on social media, from government guidelines, from other health professionals and doctors and things like that. Do you find it a difficult thing to navigate in your practice? Yeah, I mean, I do see, um, I once did a tally of, like this was a while ago, so I don't know what it would be like now, but I did like a tally of my clients to see what was the rate of sort of veganism and vegetarianism. Um, and I think it was quite 30% um, that I was saying, which I know we know, I can't remember what the exact rates, do you know what the current rates, uh, population rates would be? Is it about 10%, something like that? Of people that are consuming vegan or vegetarian diet. Um, but what I found was that they were often coming to see me about six or 12 months post the dietary change. Um, and this was most common I was seeing in females. I, I really see it in males. Um, however, yeah, and I think a lot of my clients report different reasons. Um, some people talk about not liking the taste of meat mm. or feeling like it sits funny in their stomach, you know, which I think I suspect just reflects digestive, you know, kind of issues there with microbiome and, and digestion and, and other things. Um, not necessarily that they shouldn't eat meat, but that, you know, something's not kind of going too well in, within the gut and digestive tract. Um, so... Yeah, not liking the taste. Um, occasionally it can be tied into kind of trauma experiences, um, being concerned about cruelty to animals, which make, you know, and worrying about that, um, feeling a lot of empathy, you know, people that mm. feel a lot of empathy and they worry a lot. Um, sometimes, you know, there's guilt and kind of those sorts of feelings around it. Um, obviously all the climate change kind of concerns and, and issues about um, for some kind of yeah, farming practices. Um, so there's, there's always so many reasons and I'm always sensitive to kind of understand like why somebody is doing that. Um, sometimes people just think it's better for their health. They might've read Mm. something and decided that's probably better. Um, so I find out the reason I kind of have a discussion around that. I don't see it as my role to convert anyone, you know, in terms of that they should, you know, reconsider their diet. However, that said, I also kind of talk about how important all the nutrients are and that by taking that out, they're missing the most nutrient-dense kind of practical way to get all of those nutrients um, in, mm. you know, and that it's actually not easy to replicate that um, without that food source. Yeah, um, It's probably not impossible for a vegetarian diet, you know, and I, um, I'm sure there's a lot of people coping well and I don't see them on vegetarian diets um vegan diet I find you know I mean for example like b12 as you know you can't source that um in non-animal products Mm. um and and often so what's happening is people are not aware of those dietary gaps and they're not actually supplementing to try and at least kind of get those needs met so yeah iron um b vitamin zinc Mm. which is super important for stress um so yeah, I think your question was around 
what like what happens sort of with the, with clients that have made that dietary change and kind of how easy it is to walk people through those ideas. Um, so yeah, I I have a lot of acceptance, like I said, for if people choose not to make a change there, I just make sure that they know that they need to really go and probably work with someone on on boosting all of those things up. And sometimes people decide that they're going to re-include animal um, products and sometimes there's certain ones that they're more comfortable with, mm. um, like eggs, um, free-range eggs um, or um, organ meats mm. sometimes, which, as you know, are often wasted. So they can be a really nutritious source. It's kind of a, you know, from an environmental perspective, um, using up, you know, nose-to-tail kind of, consumption mm. um muscles would be yeah. another one right apparently muscles don't yeah. have a nervous system and look at your face you're like oh not sure about that <laughs> yeah but disclaimer so... i can't eat any seafood <laughs> <laughs> i love yeah. muscles i wish i could though i just it all tastes terrible to for, me for some reason yeah no for yeah. you probably might need to do some work or that or in the psychology <laughs> <of> that, karen <laughs> no. um no i i'm with you like i i certainly would never change in, would never try to convert someone from their dietary preference yet would talk to them about the potential pitfall or I wouldn't frame it like that I would just say could we just really need to make sure we're dialing in these nutrients that you really need and and I feel and I also if they're open to it I encourage them to sort of seek out other information on some of the other things which they may have heard which Mm. Um, might not be accurate with regards to the environment or whether or not it's good or bad for your health and and, and that kind yeah. of thing, of which, of course, I'm very confident to talk them through the health story around around nutrition. Um, mm. But a, a very well-formulated vegan diet is really expensive because you have to allow for the supplemental sources of protein and nutrients and things like that. But that is definitely more of a... Um, I suppose a privileged position to be in to be able to do that. Do you find in your with your clients that when people um, are eating kind of more plant, you know, vegan kind of diet, that they tend to include a lot more of processed kind of protein sources, like which I know is kind of a new thing, mm. um, you know, out there in, in the food options. Yeah, I do. And they rely, so a lot of the people I see would be insufficient protein, as we discussed, uh, insufficient calories at the start of the day, particularly in light of a lot of the fasting practices that are going on. And, you know, both you and I see the value in, in, in appropriately using fasting as a tool in some circumstances. But where I see it time and again is that under eating insufficient protein and fat at the start of the day and unfortunately at the end of the day there is just this insatiable appetite to continue to eat plus a lot of digestive issues because the types of foods that are legumes and and a lot of fiber and stuff um it's yeah it's a real challenge for some people and then of course with those more processed plant-based products I do believe there are a couple out there which aren't nearly as bad as others but from the sort of the processing perspective the ingredients added the potential environmental cost of producing these things the very high price point which actually means it's just not a viable option for a lot of people um i yeah i steer them away from them for the most part it's, upon saying that though of course there'll be people that eat them or we have some of that stuff at our house as well because sometimes you can't control everything and everything that goes into anyone's mouth right <laughs> yeah um I suspect the reason that I see quite a few quite a number of people that are um excluding animal um, products from their diet I think one is because I'm in Wellington which is just sort of like this interesting city where people are quite diverse and they like to you know there's lots of um, environmentally kind of minded um, people here and um, and all of that so I think that's one aspect um, but I think the reason I see them in my practice is often you know where there are those sort of like genetic epigenetic kind of um, issues with some of those particular nutrients around um, you know methylation and, and mm. things with sort of like B vitamins and so when they take it out those gaps really become um, accentuated for them, mm. which might differ from someone that didn't have those sort of personal, um, yeah, I guess epigenetic kind of 
issues. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so interesting, yeah. eh? Yeah. And that's why I think there's probably lots of people out there that are doing these diets, you know, and they're not coming in with mental health problems. Mm. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting area. It'd be great to see a bit more research coming out around some of the, you know, I guess, um, yeah, at what sort of things people are actually experiencing and um, in terms of mental health. Yeah, completely. Mm. And then with regards to sort of nutrients and mental health, like it would – there's a lot of talk around the like importance of some of these nutrients. Um, yet when you see the sources of those nutrients being sort of promoted, they are the more vegetarian sources of these nutrients. Like an omega threes are such a good example of this, where you see plant based omegas and um, you know take this to help support your omega three. Eat chia seeds and walnuts and flaxseed. But the conversion rate to those longer chain fatty acids, which we need, is like 2% maximum, you know. So there's, there's, you cannot get your omega-3s from plants the way that you're promoted and the way that some supplement companies would suggest that you can. Yeah. Algae, of course, being the yes, exception. Yes, I was going to ask about algae. Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, it's not as widely sort of available, but it's there's just a lot of misinformation around um, diet and mental health. And I, and I feel like uh, red meat and um, protein-based sources sort of get lumped into junk food a lot of the time. And we know that a junk food diet isn't good for the brain. So therefore the recommendations are, and they're great, you know, fruits and vegetables are contain super yeah. important, amazing phytochemicals and nutrients, but they shouldn't be the backbone of, of the, you know, a, a dietary approach to support mental health, in my opinion anyway. And coming back to the nervous system being made of fat, you know, like the myelin sheath is it's fats and lipids and it, it needs those. So we, we do need to sustain that. Um, I listened to um, a talk Lara Bryden gave this week um, on perimenopause, which is a super interesting area that I see women all the time kind of coming in in that sort of, you know, 12-year kind of approximate window leading into menopause. Um, but in her talk, she was talking about that in the absence of um, fats, that the myelin sheath can potentially, like you, your body will literally like cannibalise the myelin yeah. Um, in order to get its fat meat. So yeah. because through perimenopause, your brain's recalibrating from um, sort of like glucose for energy towards kind of fats for energy. As you know, this is your area more than mine. I'm just sort of regurgitating some learning mm. um, from, from this talk. But um, I found that um, like I, I need to go away and kind of think about that idea a lot more in terms of other critical windows over the lifespan in the nervous system. Like are there other times where that process potentially happens because mm. um, that really yeah it just I never looked at it like that um, I don't know if you've heard of that before yeah but, I I yeah. have and and I wonder how much of that relates to the increased prevalence of like dementia and Alzheimer's and in mm. women as we age yeah. compared to men and I remember listening to a podcast where that was, um, you know, one of the things that they were talking about was you know the prevalence rates and. Yeah, so I am. I'm familiar with it. Yeah, you're right. Super interesting. Mm, yeah, well, and because you know, Lara's work has kind of highlighted how yeah, dementia, other neurological things like mm. you know, migraines are happening. Um, mm. yeah, Parkinson's. So the risk for those sorts of things happening for women over that window when you know if they're not kind of looking after their their nervous system well. Yeah. yeah. And also mm -hmm. women, you know, like they juggle so much and it's not that mm -hmm. men don't juggle stuff, but like you, you, we probably know a lot of women who, and you know, you're probably someone yourself, you, you know, mothers particularly put themselves last. And I see this a lot with my clients and, and things like that is that they, they look after everyone else and don't think about how to look after themselves. So there are a number of things that sort of need to happen in order that, for them to make those moves. And one of them is to appreciate, is to really dial in that idea that if you don't look after yourself, then how are you going to then be of service to others? Maybe if that's someone's sort of motivating thing, because like own oxygen mask own oxygen mask exactly Karen so yeah. um are your books open now uh my mini course yes yes talk uh, to me next week yes yes so yeah very excited to have them almost ready and by, um, by next week they will be up and available to people 
Um, so can you talk yeah, to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, for for a little while, I've been wanting to move into online doing putting together sort of an online program because so much of what I do, I just feel like is is quite broad kind of ideas, and it gets really hard when you just all you've got is like one on one sort of capacity um and that's all you can do so I, I had this idea to put it into a program probably for about three years that's how long it's taken um the pandemic sort of like sped me along um with with getting my act together um but yeah so currently have the sort of like a free little mini course that's um part kind of the first part of all of that um awesome. the actual main program will be coming in the early start of next year um so still working on that um, but this little course is called um, Reset and Refuel from Chronic Stress, uh, Anxiety and Fatigue. Awesome. Um, and it's just three little parts. So it's just talking people through that um, stress response and endurance stage of stress and also an exhaustion stage, um, which we didn't talk as much about um, today, but it's that sort of enforced rest and recovery um, that the body will go into um, where you haven't been able to stop um, after an endurance stage of stress. Um, it, it just briefly differentiates traumatic stress and talks a little bit about stress in your, in your close relationships. Um, and then the part two is really focused more on the reset and refuel component. So a bit of what we talked about today was some of those top-down or mind strategies like breathing and grounding um, and examples of how to kind of do that um, and just some very basic nutritional ideas to support stress. Um, I mean, it's, it's, you know, in a small thing like this, it can't go in depth, but those, those very broad sort of overarching ideas. Um, and then there's just a little workbook so people can kind of put it all together and personalize for themselves um, if they want to. Um, so, yeah, I'm really excited to have it almost ready to go. Karen, that's yeah. amazing because what I know is that there are very few people in your field that have your approach and I'm not suggesting that other approaches aren't appropriate and also very successful but I just love how you focus on the holistic side of things with bringing in nutrients, bringing in nutrition along with those psychological kind of tools because it really it feels like it's very complete and I know that people get a lot of value of that. and But there are only so many Karens in the world. So the fact that you're bringing it online and making it so much more available, I think, is amazing. So, Thanks, so by the time this comes out, um, this uh, your course would have been up for a couple of weeks. Where can people find it? Um, so it's going to sit on my website at this stage. So my website is integrativepractice.com, um, and there'll be a sign-up. Uh, kind of button quite evident on that page um, it'll probably also be over on my Facebook and probably on my Instagram um, which are at integrative practice I believe um, so yeah just yeah wherever you look on any of those you should be able to find it that is awesome and we will link to the show notes as well Karen thank you for your time this morning it's always a pleasure to talk to you Oh, it's been so nice to come on and have a chat and I've um, really enjoyed listening to your podcast and watching you grow it over time and it, yeah it's just I'm so thrilled for you um yeah I've learned so much so that is awesome and I cannot wait to come down to Windy Wellington again and um <laughs> hang out it'll be fun yeah or Waikiki Island maybe oh yeah that'll go be good somewhere. too <laughs> yeah awesome Karen right. see you later bye yeah. see you Nikki bye All right, team, hope you enjoyed that. As I said at the beginning of the show, Karen is one of my best mates and she is such a wealth of information and I feel really privileged to know her and she's such a warm, caring, lovely, lovely person. And I know that, that her empathy and her compassion will come through when you check out her website and sign up for her Project Revive course. Now, next week on the podcast, I am interviewing one of the most inspirational runners that I follow on Instagram and anyone who's in the ultra running space will be familiar with Mike Wardian so we have a great chat next week and until then though you can catch me over on Twitter at Mickey Willardin that's also the handle on my Instagram account over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition 
or on my website mickeywillardin.com where you can sign up to get my free weekly email on all the research things that I'm interested in right now. You can sign up to one of my meal plans, be it fat loss, keto longevity plan, or just a good old real food nutrition plan under the title Be Awesome for some good balanced gluten-free meal options. Or sign up to my recipe portal, which is actually an awesome way to support the podcast as well. So $12 a month, you get access to my recipe library, which is updated weekly. My weekly email, you get access to my real food nutrition group on Facebook and the opportunity for me to have some input into your nutrition via our online platform messaging system. So you can just really pick my brain on all things nutrition. You know I love that stuff. Hopefully you do too. And in addition to the recipe portal as a way to support the podcast, of course, for you to like the podcast on your favorite podcast platform, subscribe if you can, leave a review. That would also be amazing. Hey team, really good to connect with you today. And I hope that wherever in the world you are, your week is going well. And I really appreciate you tuning in so you have a great week and we will catch up next week with my conversation with Mike Gordian bye for now